Father, you are so good, and you are patient, and you are loving, and you are gracious, and I just give you all the glory for the work. And Father, I, I think of all the things I just said, and I know you're doing a work in our church and through our church, and I'm thankful for that. And I know that there are men and women sitting here today or who sit here on other various weeks or who even listen online, God, who you've called and gifted for a ministry to this community. And I pray that you would give each of us not only the knowledge of what you've called us to, but the power by your Holy Spirit to carry it out and the guidance as to where. I ask, Father, as we continue in an attitude of worship this morning and we look into your word, that you would guide us, that you would speak to us, and that your spirit would be the one who leads this morning. And that you would be glorified in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we went through chapter 7, I had mentioned that I wanted to take each chapter, 7, 8, and 9, in its entirety. And I lied. I didn't mean to lie, but I kind of did. Because there's just too much in chapter 9 to take all of chapter 9 at once. So we're going to split it in half. We're going to stop halfway. And I titled this message Eternal Redemption Part 1. So guess what next week will be? Eternal Redemption Part 3. Just to mess with people, because everyone's going to wonder what happened to Part 2. Um, no, I won't do that, because I'll confuse myself. Be a year from now, and I'll look back on these studies, and I'll go, what happened to Part 2? We established two weeks ago that Jesus is Melchizedek. Last week, we looked at how Jesus established the new covenant in his blood, which we celebrated today as we celebrated the Lord's Supper. And today, we will focus on the limitations of the earthly service, what Jesus fulfilled perfectly in himself. That statement will make a little more sense as we go. Are you ready? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service, and the earthly sanctuary. I don't know why I said it like that. I apologize. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So much right there. So the Old Covenant, what we call either the Mosaic or the Levitical Law or Covenant, had earthly service that was performed in an earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle or the temple that was prepared. This is described for us in this passage, and we're going to take a brief look at how each piece of the tabernacle points to Jesus Christ. Paul states there in verse 5 that he doesn't want to speak in detail of these things, but I do. And for those of you who weren't with us when we studied Exodus 24 through 26, where we went through the various pieces of the tabernacle and how they point to Jesus Christ, 
I thought it would be worthwhile to spend a little bit of time doing that today. Not too much. If you really want to get into it, you can go back and listen to our studies in Exodus. So the tabernacle slash temple was meant to be the focal point of daily life in Israel. Right? If you remember, as they were wandering through the desert, they actually set the tabernacle up in the middle, and all the tw uh, 12 tribes were set up around it. It actually, if you looked at it aerially, would look like a cross. But all of their tents were meant to face the tabernacle, because that was supposed to be the first thing they saw when they got up in the morning was the presence of God and the pillar of fire at night or the pillar of cloud by day. And that was supposed to be the focal point of the life of the nation because there were morning sacrifices and evening sacrifices and incense burning to represent prayer, so on and so forth. That, that was the point. Now, when they moved into the nation and eventually they built the temple that was in Jerusalem and they were still supposed to go there at least three times a year in order to worship and sacrifice. It was meant to be the focal point because it was the place where God's glory or God's presence dwelled among his people. Now, this has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but it's been fulfilled in Jesus as he dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. That is an interesting thought to consider. You ready? In John 1.14, it said, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, the word of God tells us, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. This building, it's great. It's nice when it's cold. And we can turn the really noisy heaters on. And, and we, can, we can all be in here, and, and when it's raining or when it's snowing, we have a place. During the summer, it gets a little warm in here, so. But still, we're not in the sun. This is not the church. This is not where God dwells. Now, don't get me wrong. His presence is here right now. I know that. But it's not because of the building. It's because of you. And because of me. Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside each and every one of us. People love to say, oh, I just, I love to enter the presence of God. And my question often is, is when did you leave? <laughs> because we cannot leave the presence of God as followers of Christ. Even people in the world who have completely rejected his offer of salvation are still in some way, shape, or form in his presence because he's everywhere. It's a fancy word. He's omnipresent, which basically means he's everywhere all the time, all at once. So right now, we're here and other places in the country. He's, he's there with them, just like he's here with us. In other places in the world, he's there with them, just like he's here with us, because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And Jesus said that it was good for him to go to the right hand of the Father, because then the Spirit could come and dwell inside of us, and God could be present in all of our lives, all the time. So we don't ever actually leave the presence of God. What we do is sometimes we don't realize or recognize that we're in the presence of God. Now just 
Wow, this is a big rabbit trail that I didn't mean to go on, but too bad. Now imagine, I, I, I was a teacher for a while. A couple years, I spent teaching elementary school. And I had a good group of kids. Um, but I also taught junior high band. And every now and then, when I was teaching junior high band, I had to step out of the classroom uh, and go down to the office because I printed something or I needed to make a copy for one of my students. What do you think happened? While I was out of the classroom with a group of junior high students who had loud musical instruments. <laughs> Chaos. That's the right word. Chaos, right? And I would come back up and they'd be like, <gasps> sorry, Mr. Stoller. Like, whatever. You're not sorry. You did it on purpose. Get back to work. So we get this idea, well, i got to be really good at church because God's watching when I'm at church. But maybe not so much when I'm at Walmart. I, God probably doesn't want to look at Walmart like the rest of us. But still, you know, he's there too. He's with us everywhere. Every time we make a dumb decision, he's there with us. Every time we make a good decision, he's there with us. When we are in church on Sunday morning and lifting our hands and praising God, he's there with us. When we're at home cleaning the litter box and being angry because the cat missed. We have, we have a cat that does that. He's there too. Right? He's always with us. I had a, um, I heard a pastor say once, it was on the discussion of how you should dress when you go to church. Well, should, should you wear a suit and tie? Is it okay to wear jeans? You know, how is it? And, and just so you know, I don't care. I'm just glad you're here. Um, as long as you have clothes on. Right? Just, just to clarify. But he said, God sees you when you're sitting on the toilet. Do you think he cares what you're wearing when you come to church? And I went... Oh, now I've heard a lot of people, oh, when you come to church, you've got to dress your best. You know, God doesn't care about what you're wearing. He cares about your heart. God doesn't care what you look like. He cares about that you're following him and being obedient to his word. And he makes that possible by literally living inside each and every one of us. So we don't need a temple anymore. And when we get to heaven, you read the descriptions of it in the book of Revelation. No sun, no moon, no temple. Why? Because he is there. He's here too. So now let's talk about how the parts of the temple that are mentioned, the tabernacle here, right? You have the lampstand, the showbread, or the table in the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, the second veil, where the ark, the golden censer, uh, were, right? So we have these pieces that are mentioned. The first is the lampstand, which, of course, was filled with oil. They had oil lamps back then. And we know from Zechariah chapter 4 that the lampstand and the oil, the oil especially, was a picture of the Holy Spirit, while the light of the lampstand points to Jesus Christ. He said in, of himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The table and the showbread are next, right? There were 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel. The priests were allowed to eat that bread. They would replace it daily. They were allowed to eat the, the bread that had sat there all day. And then the fresh bread would go on the table. 
And Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And this is called the sanctuary. And I love the word sanctuary in Greek. It's hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S, if you want to write it down. It means to be sacred, pure, blameless, and holy. And this, of course, describes Jesus' character as we looked at it in chapter 7. And also the sanctuary was the place where the people came to meet with God. We now, of course, do this through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, he told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we spent time this past Wednesday in 1 Samuel, or maybe it was two Wednesdays ago, talking about the fact that God tells us how we get to come to him. We don't get to decide that. We don't get to come to him however we choose. We come to him the way he chooses. In the Old Testament, it was through sacrifices made at the tabernacle. Now we come through Jesus Christ. No other way. We don't come on our own merit. We don't come because God owes us something. We don't come because we're entitled. We don't come because he better listen. If you're that dumb to try that, knock yourself out. I come in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, when I come in the name of Jesus Christ, we were told in Hebrews chapter 6 that we can come to the throne of grace with boldness, but only through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Then we go behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all or the holy of holies, right? The first part, the sanctuary, was the holy place. Then you had the holy of holies. This is where the glory and presence of God dwelled and where only the high priest could go once per year. We're going to talk about that more before we're done today. Right before that was the golden censer, which offered incense as a representation of prayer. We see that in Luke 1, 8 through 10, Zechariah was offering incense at the time of prayer when the angel showed up and said, hey, your wife's going to get pregnant. We see that in Revelation 5, 8. The incense rises before the throne of God as the prayers of the saints. And we know that from chapter 725 and 8-6, um, that Jesus lives to make intercession for us as our mediator. So the representation of incense rising before the throne of God is prayer that rises before the throne of God to our intercessor, Jesus Christ. And there is no other intercessor. There is no other mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we live in a world where people want other mediators. Maybe they want to come to God through Mary. No, you can't. Mary was blessed. Go read Luke chapter 2 and read what she said. Mary recognized God as her Savior and that she was blessed and didn't deserve what was happening to her. She is not our mediator. She did nothing to redeem us. Pretty great lady. Think it would be cool to meet her. But she's not the reason we get in. Nor are any of the saints. You know, Saint so-and-so, watch over me. Saint so-and-so doesn't care about you. He's not watching over you. She or he is not listening to you, not answering your prayers, and not interceding on your behalf. Saint so-and-so isn't doing that. 
oh, I just, I send good vibes out into the universe and hope the universe will take care of me. What a stupid statement. I'm sorry, that's a little judgmental, but it's true. The universe isn't going to take care of you. The universe doesn't have a consciousness. The God who created the universe does. Oh, I just go out into Mother Nature and I know, I know that the trees, oh, just shut up. Right? This is not Lord of the Rings. In Lord of the Rings, there are sentient trees. They're called Ents. E-N-T. They don't really exist, though. And there are no spirits in the trees that are watching over you. There's no spirit in the water or spirit in the rock or spirit in the grass. It is all satanic, meant to distract you from the only one who can save you, the one true God in Jesus Christ. Done. Period. Exclamation point. Now, I love the people in our valley. And there's a lot of them here that are very deceived by all of this stuff. And it's our job to share with them the love and truth of Jesus Christ. That's the golden censer. Then there's the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, with the mercy seat set on top of it, which is a representation of of the throne of God. A throne that could not be approached before, except for once a year with multiple sacrifices and only by the high priest. And now, through Jesus Christ, Hebrews 4.16, I said 6 earlier, it's chapter 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I preached on that a lot when we were in Hebrews 4, so I'm not going to do it again, but... It's only because of Jesus that we can now approach. The golden pot that held the manna, that was God's provision of bread while they were in the desert. Once again, John 6.35, that points to Jesus. And then inside, three things. Um, Aaron's rod that budded, which showed, showed God's chosen leadership throughout the nation of Israel. And of course, Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is God's chosen head of the church, which is us. Philippians 2, 5 and 11, Romans 14, 8 and 9, Acts 3, 15, all great places. It should be in your notes. Then they have the tablets of the covenant, which represent God's law and God's word. And we know that Jesus is the logos, the word of God, the very representation of who God is to us revealed by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And then in it, above it, above the mercy seat were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. This is a picture of the throne room of God. We see a description similar to that in places like Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel, uh, the first three chapters, and then again in Revelation chapter 4, and several other places in the book of Revelation. All of it points to Jesus Christ. All of it. All of the tabernacle, all of the Old Testament sacrifices. When we were going through the book of Leviticus, I had a blast studying and talking about how every single sacrifice points to Jesus Christ and the relationship we can have with God through him. And I know sometimes we approach the book of Leviticus, or if you're, you're like me, you're reading through the Bible, you get to the book of Leviticus, you're like, eh. Until you realize that all of it, all of it points to Jesus Christ. Genesis 1-1 and everything that follows points to Jesus Christ. 
Verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. And some of those services would include the sacrifices, the, the, the lighting of the incense, the trimming of the wicks, filling the, the uh, lampstand with oil, replacing the showbread, those sorts of things. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And we've talked a lot about that over the last couple of weeks. We're going to talk about it more as we go. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, or in other words, the way into the presence of God was not yet made. It was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances, imposed until the time of reformation. So these four verses are a bit of a review of what we talked about in chapter 8. Uh, what they contain for, uh, sorry, it's a review for us of what they, we looked at, and they contain more than once in the last couple of weeks, but for the sake of continuity, let's just be reminded of this. Right? So the original service was limited time. Could only go into the second part once per year, and only the high priest could go alone. So it was limited in time. You couldn't go into the presence or be in the presence of God constantly. It was limited sacrifice. It was not without blood, which he offered for himself and the people's sins committed in ignorance. But they had to offer it over and over and over again. And we talked about last week that Christ offered himself once for all. One sacrifice sufficient to save everyone who comes to him. But back then they couldn't do that. Animal after animal after animal after animal after animal. And we, we have given that illustration. You could make a sacrifice in the morning because you told off your boss. And then you went back to work and you told off a customer. You had to go back and make another sacrifice. Because it was always temporary, limited sacrifice, not in Jesus, perfect sacrifice for all time. Limited access to the Father. The Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Right? You and I, if we were in Israel in the first century, we couldn't go into the presence of God. Well, until Jesus came on the scene. Let's go, you know, maybe first century BC or all the years where they were in the nation. You and I couldn't go into the presence of God. Only the high priest could. You and I couldn't experience that. Now we can. Only in Christ. And it was limited forgiveness. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifice are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect. In any words, they had all these rules food, drink, various washings, fleshly ordinances. They had all these sacrifices, but what did it do? Temporarily covered sin, but didn't get rid of it. Only Jesus can wash us and make us white as snow. And he said this happened until the time of the Reformation. And this has nothing to do with the Protestant Reformation uh, that began when Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door. Different Reformation. Still a good one. We're here because of it. But 
different Reformation. This Reformation is the Messianic Reformation. When Jesus the Messiah changed all of this through his death and resurrection. When Jesus accomplished this for us, he made the way into the presence of God the Father through himself, offering us unlimited forgiveness and grace for all who believe in him and turn from their sins. And this is a wonderful gift. And we discussed it at length last week in chapter 8 as we saw how Jesus established the new covenant and replaced the old in himself through his So now we pick up in verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. I love how verse 11 explains that Jesus is the greater high priest of good things to come. He is the sanctuary, the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, with God as the one through whom we come to meet with him. All. Oh so much. You ready? He's the better sacrifice. It's not the blood of calves, bulls, and goats, but with his own blood that he went into the Holy of Holies, making the way to God the Father possible through himself, leading to our everlasting redemption or salvation in him. So you have to picture this. The Old Testament system was meant to show that you and I could not just waltz into the presence of God, right? That the only way we could go into the presence of God or that anybody, because it was only the high priest, but the only way that anybody could go into the presence of God was through a blood sacrifice. But that sacrifice was imperfect. It was temporary. So Jesus came and he made as himself the perfect Sacrifice. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter uh, 20, 21, 22, somewhere in there. When Abraham offered Isaac on the mountain, and as they were walking up, Isaac looks at him and he goes, Dad, well, I, you got a knife and you got a rope and we got some fire, but what are we going to kill? Right? That's the message Bible. And Abraham looked at his son and he said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And that's exactly what he did, because Jesus is God. And he is the sacrifice for our sins. And if the blood of bulls and goats could purify, even if it was only temporary, how much more will Jesus perfect sacrifice? I said that word really weird. How much more will Jesus perfect sacrifice 
which he offered through the eternal spirit, cleanse us from dead works to serve the living God. Let's take a couple verses and talk about this. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Perfect sacrifice, precious blood, redeemed each and every one of us. And I love the word redeemed. I think it's a word we don't talk about. There's a great song by Big Daddy Weave. Anybody know who Big Daddy Weave is? They've been around for a while. Uh, recently, uh, one of the brothers passed away. Very sorry. Um, but Big Daddy Weave wrote a song called Redeemed. And it's a beautiful song. Because when we think about the word redeemed, this is what always pops into my head. We used to live in California. And you can still see this sometimes. If you get like a Coke can or, or something like that, right? It'll have CA, California, redemption value. Which, you know, you could take that bottle or can or whatever to a recycling center and they'll give you five cents a bottle or so much per pound of aluminum or whatever. That's the redemption value. The idea behind redemption is that you give value to something that has lost its value. Think about that. How did we lose our value? According to the book of Isaiah, it is our sin that separates us from God. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not valuable to him. But we lose that value when we sin and separate ourselves from God. We were having this discussion, right? Our world, I, I want to I preach hope. And that hope is in Jesus Christ. But if all you do is look at the world, there's not a lot of hope. If all you do is look at the world, there's not a lot of purpose. And when we talk about why are we having the mental health crisis in our world that we're having today? And I'm not saying that if you have a mental health issue, because you all know I do, that, that you don't have the hope of Jesus Christ. That's not what I'm saying. But we can see billions of people in the world that are suffering with no hope. Why do we have the sin crisis? Why, why is the pregnancy center necessary? Why do we actually have to try to convince people to not murder their children? That, that shouldn't even be a conversation. That should be, oh, you're having a baby? Well, should I murder it? No! But we actually have those conversations with people. Why? Because people have lost their value before God. They think they're, they're evolved from monkeys instead of uniquely created by a loving God. They think that there's no purpose, right? Paul himself said, if there's no resurrection, we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, which is a popular saying among the Jews. Right? That's the attitude people have. Well, there's no God, there's no hell, there's no heaven, there's no afterlife, there's no consequences. I can just do whatever I want. Who cares? Because they've lost the value that God has placed them. And that is what our redemption with the precious blood of Christ does. It restores our value. And it's not that that value wasn't there because God values each and every one of us greatly, even those who are rejecting him. He still values them. 
It makes us aware of our worth before God. Right? Big movement back in the 80s and 90s, and it still exists today. We don't talk about it as much. But the self-esteem movement. Oh, you just need to have enough self-esteem. You want to know what? I don't need to know how much I value myself. And I personally don't care how much you value me, even though it means a lot that many of you do. But that's not what matters. What matters is how much God values me. What matters is how much he thinks I'm worth. Because you want to know what he thinks I'm worth? The blood of his son. That's what he thinks I'm worth. That's what he thinks you're worth. When we get to Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him, he did this. He paid this price. That's what you're worth. Our world will tell us, well, you're only worth your career or your success or the amount of money you make. The world is telling young women all over the world, you're only worth what your body looks like. I almost swore in the kitchen. Bull pucky. Pucky, pucky, pucky. It's bull. It's not what you're worth. You're only worth what your stock portfolio looks like. Or you're only worth the fanciness of your car. Please don't get me wrong. If you drive a nice car, I don't begrudge you. I drive a nice car. And, you, you know, I mean, if you looked at all the things in my house that have an apple on them, you'd know I'm not suffering. Right? We're doing okay. That's not what I'm, I'm getting at. But that's not where your worth is found. And that's the message we need to communicate. We talk about the abortion issue. And yes, we should, people shouldn't be murdering children. That, that's a given, I would think. But what we should really be doing is teaching young men and young women the worth that God has placed on them and that they don't have to earn that worth by sacrificing their bodies to the gods of pleasure and debauchery. I sound like an old Baptist preacher this morning, folks. Because that's what we're worth. The precious blood of Christ. And that's what the world needs to know. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of, his, of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We looked at a little bit of this earlier, but do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Right? A little bit of bad news, folks. Do not be deceived because uh, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites. Oh, the Bible doesn't say that homosexuality is a sin. Yes, it does. Nor thieves or covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the thing. Such were some of you. Not me. But the Bible says such were some of you. Let's see. Let's look at this list. Yes, yes, no, kind of. No, no. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. I'm like, I like eight out of 12 there. I, I was a fornicator, an idolater. While I've never physically cheated on my wife, I've lusted. I was never a homosexual or sodomite. I will swear on a stack of Bibles to that one. That has never been my issue. Never will be. But I've been a thief. 
I've been covetousness, or been covetous. Um, I've never really been drunk. I've had too much, but I've never really been drunk. Does that count? You guys going to buy that at all? <laughs> That's what you told your mother. But I told my mother, too. <laughs> Woohoo! I didn't inhale, right? Never inhaled. I've been an extortioner, right? If it wasn't for the blood of Jesus Christ, I could not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of God, praise be to God. Because as such were some of you, such was me. I tell people all the time, I am so happy that none of you knew me before I got saved, or even as an early Christian. I am so grateful for the work he's done in my life. But it's him. It's not me. And he says he is the mediator of the new covenant, which we discussed at length last week. And he is able to do so because of his death, by which he redeems us from the transgressions under the law, that those of us who are called may receive the promise of the eternal, eternal inheritance in Christ. And so that is a, another summary, really, of what we talked about last week. And it is a foretaste of what we are going to talk about in the rest of chapter 9. Chapter 9 is one message. Really, chapter 7, 8, 9, and the first half of 10 are one message. So when we're ending here, it is very much a to-be-continued. Because this idea of him becoming the mediator through his death is the very topic we will pick up on in verse 16. Because he mediates the new covenant that he established by his blood so he could redeem us from the condemnation of the law and give us an eternal inheritance in himself. And we sa I said this last week, 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So as we close, as we close, I'll make sure I'm only 52 minutes. Amy's laughing because I looked at the time on the recorder. As we close, there's a guy by the name of Brian Chapel, and he pointed out something very cool. He pointed out that everything in God's word either predicts, prepares for, reflects, or results from the person and or work of Jesus Christ. I really like that statement, right? In other words, all of the Bible points to Jesus. Now, this may be through a prediction. It may be through prophecy. It may be through preparing our hearts to understand our need for him, which is the purpose of a lot of the Old Testament. If you haven't done your homework and read the book of Galatians, I encourage you to do so. There won't be a test, but I still encourage you to do so. Um, perhaps the passage reflects on who Jesus is, or it results from who he is or what he has done. No matter what, all of the Bible is redemptive as it all points to Jesus Christ, which we clearly saw as we looked at how the tabernacle pointed to Jesus. And as a result of the limited service in the tabernacle, we also saw how Jesus' perfect sacrifice leads to our eternal redemption. And I put a little note in here. I truly hope 
that you are gaining the richness that God has bestowed upon us through the book of Hebrews. I've read the book of Hebrews a number of times. I've heard it taught. I have spent a lot of time in the book of Hebrews, but this is the first time I've ever taught through it in its entirety. And it is literally causing my mind to explode with glee. There's so much in here. And it's so good. And I really hope that it is just filling your spiritual tank with the richness of God. So what do we take home? I say it every week. I'm going to say it every week until Jesus kills me or takes me home, whatever comes first. He takes us all home. Have you come to Jesus and received the gift he purchased for you with his precious blood? The gift of eternal redemption and forgiveness. And whether you're here today or whether you're joining us online or you listen to this recording six months or ten years from now, if you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, if you do not know the great worth that he has placed upon you because he was willing to sacrifice himself to save you, you need to know that. You just need to. When the day comes, there isn't going to be a test that you can pass. There's going to be one question. Why should I let you in? And there's going to be one answer. Plead the blood of Jesus Christ. But you have to plead that blood before God gets it. Right? You have to plead that blood before God gets it. Next, I'm going to give you a bit of a challenge. Are you, are you, as a believer, spending time in the Old Testament? Recognizing that all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. Now, I say that because... I meet a lot of Christians, and I have over the many years that I've done this, who simply ignore the Old Testament. They don't, oh gosh, you know, there's names and genealogies and, and laws and sacrifices, and there's all this bogged down, and there's all these horrible people, and yeah, are you spending time reading about them so you can learn and grow? Because, like, we love the book of Psalms. Anybody else? I love the book of Psalms. I am almost constantly reading the book of Psalms. I love the book of Proverbs. Right? We all have some of our favorites. You know, Genesis is a fun book. Love the book of Ruth. Great books. But you want to know what? Leviticus is a great book. Nehemiah is a great book. Second Chronicles is a great book. Micah. How many of you could find Micah if you had to? Right? I put my hand up only because I know the general area of the Old Testament where it is. I, I have never been, in all these years, never been able to memorize the order of the minor prophets. I always screw it up. Right? But it's there. We need to be in all of the word because 2 Timothy 3.16 doesn't say the New Testament was breathed out by God and is profitable. It says all scripture. And when Paul wrote that, the only scripture that they had was the Old Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God and useful for us. So I issue that challenge. Now, if I could only have one book of the Bible, it would be the book of John. If I could only have one, if I could only have two books of the Bible, it would be John and Romans. But thankfully, we get it all. And so, we should be taking our time to study and read and meditate upon all of it. Finally, Galatians chapter 3 warns us 
that if we have begun in the spirit, that we should not go back to the works of the flesh. Jesus died to redeem us from the works of the flesh. Whether that is our attempt to save ourselves through our own effort, or our attempt to earn God's favor through our own effort, or our attempt to grow and become spiritually mature in our own effort, we can't do it. Or what about trying to live out the purpose God has placed on our lives in our own effort? Bad idea. Bad idea. I saw a great little video on Instagram the other day. It's this little white fluffy dog. And, and somebody was holding it over a pool of water. And for some reason, this dog was not very brave and was swimming like it was in the water, anticipating being put in. And they put a little caption over it. You know, this is me when I don't recognize that God is really the one doing all the work. <laughs> right? That's us. But he's got to be the one. So are there any areas in your life or in mine I always tell you this. God deals with me on this stuff before I put it in front of you. Is there any area in your life where you are relying on your own strength or effort instead of God's? And maybe it's work. Maybe it's your spiritual life. Maybe it's, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your ministry. Maybe it's who knows. But that old way, as we show, saw, was extremely limited. The new way, through Jesus, is limitless. Just imagine the potential that he has placed within each of us if we would just surrender to him. And I, I, don't, I don't say that looking at you all like, if you want to know how that's done, just watch. I'm saying that to myself as well. Imagine what God could do with the potential he's placed in each of us if we would just surrender. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you for your incredible love and grace. Thank you for what you're showing us through this book. May we rely wholly on and surrender wholly to you through Jesus Christ. May we enjoy the life and gift that you've given us of new life and calling and purpose empowered by you. I pray that all that we would do would glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.